welcome to A Piece of Persistence. I'm Abigail Wright, and this is Paul Nelson, who I have the incredible opportunity to meet today through a mutual friend who happens to live on the same lake in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Just a few of the amazing facts about Paul. Born in 1916, he's seen quite a lot, <laughs> not unlike his grandfather, who's actually a bodyguard for Lincoln. After surviving smallpox as a child, he managed to win the running broad jump in Los Angeles in fifth and sixth grade, moved around the western United States with his family, and finally landed in Galesburg, Illinois, where he went to college and graduated with a degree from Knox College in chemistry and a minor in math. Somehow, he never managed to take a final exam. Paul met his wife, Sina, while working as a ship supervisor for DuPont in an acid laboratory. When they moved him ahead of her to Richland, Washington, he actually had to do all of their wedding plans. She traveled alone to meet him there in 1944, and they've been together ever since. For 14 years, he worked on the Hanford Engineering Works of the Manhattan Project, solving a metallurgical problem in producing fuel works, protecting employees from radiation, and managing a nuclear reactor. In 1958, he accepted a position with the Atomic Energy Commission to inspect facilities that were using radioactive material. In 1978, at 62 years of age, he retired to his current home in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Since then, he's done all of the maintenance on the house, down to the foundation, including all the electrical, the carpentry, even the plumbing. And on Sundays in July and August, he actually sailboat races. Although, Paul, you haven't done that in the last couple of years. Are you planning to go back to it? I'm giving it consideration. I'll only be 99. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's a good time to start, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to know, how is it that you never finished a final exam? Well, that's, that goes back to the fact that uh, it was during the war, and DuPont needed chemists very badly, and I was a chemistry major, and the head of the chemistry department, Ira Neifert, selected me to be interviewed. And uh, they said, yes, we need you, but we need you right now. I thought, well, I, I haven't even graduated yet. And I went back and told Neifert, and he said, well, ask your professors. And they all agreed, and I went to work for E.I. DuPont in April of 1942. DuPont let me come back for graduation. I got my diploma, never took a final exam. Amazing. <laughs> You're a lucky man. Yeah, I... Never thought it'd happen quite like that. Talk to me about working on the Manhattan Project. How did you come to move to Richland to work on it? Well, DuPont was given the contract to operate the Hanford Engineering Works. And I was working for DuPont at the time. I was one of the lucky ones that got transferred by DuPont to Richland, Washington, where they were in the production of atomic bomb. When I got out there, they put me in the metallurgical group because they had a reactor almost completed, but they had no fuel elements. Oh. And supposedly, the problem was, had all been solved in Chicago. I was given a stopwatch that said, now if, they, if you time this operation, it'll work. Well, the operation was one of taking these metal slugs of uranium and dipping them in various pots of molten metal. Well, I did the timing, and it still didn't work. So we got our own development line. Each one of us, there was Nelson, Michelson, Johnson, all a bunch of Scandinavians, I think. We managed to solve the problem. 
and uh, I felt like I contributed because the problem that was occurring and why they couldn't make these fuel elements according to the Chicago protocol was that the slug that had to be put in an aluminum can to protect it from water would either freeze before it get all the way in the can or the molten metal would, metal would penetrate the can. My contribution was figuring out a way of getting a constant temperature, not a, a sine wave of temperatures. And when we got that, we were able to successfully can uranium. Of course, the reason you can uranium is because you have to protect it from water. But we can't take the full credit. There's a couple that were working on what's called subsurface canning. That isn't quite the right word. Well, it doesn't matter. They, they, instead of using it, putting it over in what was called a whiz-bang, a hydraulic device, to push the slug into the can, it was done by submersing the slug into the molten bath of metal and slipping it into the can. Between the two things, the constant level of temperature and the subsurface canning solved the problem, so they were able to have fuel elements that fall. Actually, in the fall of 42, I got into what was called health instruments. Um, that was the, what now is health physics. They felt that health instrument might be too revealing. This is all hush-hush. So they called it health instruments rather than health physics. Well, it was mainly to protect the employees from ingesting and inhaling radioactive materials. We would... It, They'd have to get a work permit when they had to go into an area of radiation. We'd go in first and take the radiation measurements, set the time limit, set the condition on the, you call it a license, a piece of paper which authorized them to do this work in a radioactive area. And it would specify what protective clothing they had to wear, what kind of respiratory equipment they needed, what their time limit was, etc. You've solved a lot of problems in your career. To a degree. I think I got exposed to a fair bit of the probably uranium and plutonium because we were using what was called an assault mask and they were actually a heap of filters, high efficiency filters, 99.999%. We thought we were getting that kind of filtering efficiency. Later they found out it was only about one part in 50 because there's too much leakage around the face, oh, wow. face piece. Even a full face mask didn't provide really adequate protection. So I have a certain amount of plutonium in my system, I'm sure. <laughs> and for sure, a amount of uranium as well. I have some friends who work at the Hanford cleanup site trying to prevent the absorption of plutonium into the Columbia River. What, what went wrong there? Did it happen while you were there? No, I left there, I think, before those, actually the tanks were leaking. What, what happened is they uh, put the high-level waste in tanks, which weren't designed to last forever. And after being in just so long, then they start leaking. That's basically the problem. Wartime construction and then not adequate follow-up. Maybe they thought they'd last longer than they, than they did. But so they built it in a hurry? Oh yes. It was, it was amazing how they were able to build a reactor that had never been built. Operating reactor that worked so well. That's amazing. 
It's the same type of reactor, the one that I was uh, in charge of on shift, was this, uh, what they call a graphite moderated reactor, which is the same as Russia's Chernobyl. Oh. And graphite is carbon and graphite burns. But we had, we had extra precautions, extra backup. We had something like 48 vertical rods that could drop in to shut it down. Wow. We had uh, hoppers of balls, which in case of an earthquake, the vertical rods would jam up and wouldn't fall in. These balls could roll in. So then they had high towers with water towers so that you had a supply of water. Even if all your pumps were not working, you had gravity-fed water that you could feed to the reactor. So there's a lot of... DuPont was safety first. Going way back, their manufacture of gunpowder, TNT, whatever. Did that make it an easier place for you to work as an employee? Absolutely. I was quite surprised when I left college and went to work for DuPont in the acid laboratory where we analyzed acids used in the manufacture of TNT. It seemed like we had safety meetings once a week. Probably not, but it seemed that way. <laughs> And they meant, when they said safety first, they really meant it. How do you feel about atomic energy and its future in our society? Do you think it's feasible? I'm strong for nuclear energy. I think it's, uh, I think it's good. I believe it's uh, great. It doesn't, eliminate, it doesn't produce any carbon dioxide. I think that uh, it's, it's hard to say just how things will go, but... Uh, at the present moment, as I see it, um, wind power, solar energy, just can't quite cut it. But you never know. Right now they're working on batteries to, to be able to tide over the period when there's no wind and no sun. But uh, I think eventually we'll go getting our energy from the sun. Eventually, I don't know how far in the future, but eventually. If you go to uh, Netflix, I, called, I think it was called Pandora's Promise, you'll find that the reactor is designed and proved to be fail-safe, but politically it just got pushed to the side. Mm. You never know. Money dictates a lot how things go, so um, we may end up yet with uh, nuclear energy, but then again, maybe we won't. Maybe we'll end up with sunshine and wind. How did you feel living in Richland, working on the Manhattan Project when the bombs were dropped? I felt, I think we all felt that we'd done a great job. War is terrible. Nobody likes to be a party to killing people, but I think that uh, what people fail to realize is that uh, they think, oh, drop an atomic bomb on a city and destroy the whole city, terrible. But we did far worse things than that. When we firebombed Tokyo and their nearby cities, there's something like 300,000 people were destroyed, burned. It's like burning them at the stake. It didn't really accomplished too much. It wasn't even a military target. But with 
the atomic bomb, they, they did attempt to hit military targets, but forgetting that, it ended the war. Not only that, it prevented thousands of our young men and thousands of Japanese soldiers from dying. And I think on top of that, where you have people burning to death, like being burned at the stake, I think that those who were killed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, most of them were killed instantly. So by and large, it was war. We felt good at what we had done. We weren't felt good about killing people, but we felt we had served our country well. Tell me about your time at the Atomic Energy Commission. What was that like? It had its good points and its bad points, but uh, basically what we were doing was inspecting those who were using radioactive materials to ensure that they were in compliance with the federal regulations be 10 CFR 20, 30, 40, 70, and the conditions of their license. What was done, we'd go out as an inspector and inspect the facility to make these determinations, and then we'd go to the very top person, whether it was the president of the university, the head of a factory, or a head of a corporation, and inform them as to what our findings were, what the items of non-compliance were. Then we'd go back to the office, then came the hard part, we'd have to write the report. So you really enjoyed working with the people there? The inspection, of course, was, was dealing with the people and talking to those who were actually doing the work, and that was fun in itself. I enjoyed it. It was an amazing thing, though, that you'd concentrate so hard during an inspection that at the end of the day you were worn out. It was amazing. But the nicest part was the fact that we always had to end up our inspection with whoever is the top person in that organization, whether it's president of the university or factory or hospital, you name it. And they, by and large, they were really great to deal with. They were very nice. That was the fun part. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> then you'd go back and have to write the report, and it had to be written to fully substantiate all the items of non-compliance you found so that it would stand up in court. That report would then go to headquarters and then send out a letter to the licensee setting forth the items, telling them they had to report as to what, how they corrected it and so on. Do you ever miss working? No, I can't say that I have. It was fun, but I've enjoyed my retirement, I think, even more. You've been retired almost as long as you've worked. Is there anything you would do differently? Oh, I suppose there is. I just can't think of anything at the moment. <laughs> There's always something you'd like to have done differently. You've had smallpox. You've lived through almost an entire century, both world wars and the Great Depression, the moon landing. Uh, are there any landmarks in our history that you'd like to tell us about from your perspective? Pearl Harbor the whole start of the World War II as far as getting into the war with Japan. I think what bothered me the most is the fact that we had broken their code. We knew it was coming. We knew it the day almost the time, yet they couldn't get the good word out to Pearl Harbor in time to save all those young men. I thought that was uh, terrible. Another thing that's bothered me, I think, are torture 
Guantanamo. I think it's a shameful thing. The world has changed so much in our lifetime, or, or has it? How do you feel like we're doing now as a human race? I think things are going uh, about the same. I happened to read old newspapers in Galesburg, Illinois, when I was kind of researching my genealogy a bit. And I was reading those old, old papers, and it was like I was reading the present-day pictures, uh, newspapers. Thefts and deaths and you name it, all looked about the same. Tell me about your other interests. Uh, what keeps you thriving in life? How do you stay active and healthy? Well, the main thing that keeps me going is probably all the maintenance work. I, I do all the work around the house. Anything that goes wrong or goes bad, I fix it. But on top of that, well, we have docks that are on pilings, and the ice during the winter can push them over. And to prevent that, we have what's called a bubbler system. It originally started out as bubbles. Now it's with the little aquarium mini pumps that uh. squirt the water up and keeps the water from freezing all around your dock. And I, uh, during the winter, I'll take care of oh, two or three homes. Um, it's part of the rules and regulations of the lake to they have to be inspected daily. So I make the rounds and make sure that all these mini pumps are working properly. So you're still working as an inspector? <laughs> yeah, you're right in a way. In some ways it's a little tough when, to get down on a dock when there's snow and ice and so on. But So that keeps me quite busy. Then, as far as mentally, uh, I do read a lot. Mainly, well, some technical books, non-fiction. But one thing we do do, which uh, stimulates the brain, I guess, I hope, is that uh, we have happy hour at four o'clock, and along with happy hour we have, we play rummy cube. It's not just all chance, it takes a bit of mental gymnastics, if you will, to do it right. Sure. I keep my mind active that way by reading and... And you've spent some time learning, too. Did you mention... I thought I'd have a a small sailing sloop to go out on the ocean. I took courses with the uh, power squadron, U.S. power squadron, so that I would know what to do and how to do it. Part of that was uh, learning celestial navigation. I got up to junior navigator, which means that I could do celestial navigation. Never had to use it, but I learned how. You've also done some traveling too, right? Don't you, did you mention that you have family that doesn't live near here? Yeah, I have a, two daughters. One in, was in Raleigh, North Carolina. She's living still in Carolina. The other one's in Sydney, Australia. Nice. We've made about eight trips to Australia. And they've made the same number of trips this way, so we've kind of kept touch with our, our children, our grandchildren. I have Three Aussie grandsons and one U.S. grandson and one U.S. granddaughter. Do you get to talk to them often? We have Skype and uh, we hear them and see them quite frequently. So it's been good. Do you keep in touch with many friends? Seen as the, she's the one. She's the writer. She corresponds and she keeps in contact. She's, she's my banker and my correspondent. You have quite the community around this lake. Do you do you spend a lot of time with your friends around here? Main thing is uh, we belong to the sailing club, and of course, there's twenty or thirty people there. 
or there was, but so, yes. You sail, you live on a lake. What's the role of water and, and nature in general in your life? Is it important to you? I guess you could say so. We, uh, we lived in the state of Washington, and of course, we built a cabin in the Cascade Mountains. Nice. On the way out of Seattle, you go over Chinook Pass, and we were about, oh, I don't know, 10 or 11 miles below the pass. It was in a um, national forest, and you, we got a 50-year lease. I think it was like $15 a year, something like that. We built this cabin. We built it out of uh, uh, non-dimensional lumber. We went to a lumber mill down, it was just rough cut. Huh. A two-by-four was really two-by-four. It wasn't one-and-a-half by three-and-a-half like they are now. But it made it a little more difficult because you had all different thicknesses and so on. So it was, and we built a beautiful fireplace there out of a pumice block, mm. all pastel shades. We did a lot of hiking in the Cascade Mountains and with the girls. And Tell me about your longevity. You even helped me come down the stairs with my suitcase. How do you do it? <laughs> I think I'm the only one in my family who's reached 90 years of age. Almost 100. It's not in the genes. I attribute it to my wife. 71 long years. There's no pressure. I'm relaxed. I'm not under any tension. And then with the activity, and then the good food she serves me, I think. Oh, you've got a personal chef. <laughs> One of the best. She makes very good apple pie, I'll tell you. Our relationship has been particularly good because I have a great deal of respect for my wife. Intelligent woman, great gal. There's other reasons I might, my longevity might be due to some other things, like being I'm very active on my feet, which is to say, lately they're saying, stand up, even those who do exercise, get out and do their thing, should stand up more. Mm. Well, since I retired, I've been standing up quite a little. Nice, less sitting. Right. Then I'm, I'm a bit of a Pollyanna. I, I look on the happy side. I don't, I don't anticipate the thing, things are going to go bad. They're going to go the way they should. And I, uh, all of my major surgery that I've had, I've gone into it with no fear whatsoever. Hmm. Might even say uh, maybe all the radiation I received at Hanford, the uh, Manhattan Project, has contributed to my long life. Really? Yeah, there's scientific evidence that a certain amount of dose of radiation is good for you. Nice. Just like sunlight, vitamin D production versus sunburn. Too much, not good. Right amount, great. So you don't glow in the dark? <laughs> No, I don't glow in that. I feel good. I don't glow in the dark. <laughs> Just a nice, healthy glow. That's right. <laughs> Do you have any goals? I don't have at the moment any big goal. I may have had some in the past, but my only goal is now I have a notebook, and each day I write down all the things I want to get done. I rarely get the ball done, but it's it's an incentive for me to get up and get going and do them. And it's kind of fun when you can cross those things off. Yeah, I've done this and this and this. Nice. I'm in a much happier mood when I've felt like I've done a, a, a decent day's work. I've accomplished something. 
There's been days when I have accomplishments, and that's kind of dreary and draggy, and I don't like that. I get feeling much better when I've accomplished something. Do you have any habits or rituals that you would attribute to your success and happiness in your life? Live each day. Paul, I'm just so grateful to have met you, and thank you for spending the time with me and, and sharing your insights with us today. It's been my pleasure. Mine too. And thank you so much, as always, for joining us on The Piece of Persistence. Please share your comments, write a review, and share us with your friends if you liked today's episode. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to find more ways to balance happiness and success in your life. But if we forgot what really makes us sing and dance at night, it's the people around and our dreams that lives us up.